Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. August 28, 1971, was unseasonably warm in Berkeley, California, and the little restaurant on Shattuck Avenue was overwhelmed. It was opening night. The restaurant, founded by a Berkeley grad and former Montessori teacher with no formal culinary training, was both packed and unfinished. The electricity wasn't turned on until right before the doors opened for the customers, and the staff had to hang a curtain at the top of the staircase to hide the construction materials still very much in use. It was an unlikely site for a revolution, but Shea Pinney's changed American food for the better. This is The Economist Asks. I'm John Fassman, in for Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking... How do our culinary choices shape the world around us? My guest today has strong views on that question. The chef and activist Alice Waters was just 27 years old when she opened Chez Panisse. She hadn't planned to be a chef, but she was inspired by the time she spent in France as a university student. There, people ate with the seasons, and they understood that food is not just fuel, but one of life's chief pleasures. Chez Panisse bought seasonal food from small farmers long before doing so was fashionable. Her mantra that food should be local, organic, and sustainable has inspired generations since. And the city of Berkeley, then as now, was a hotbed of activism. And for Waters, food and activism have always been intertwined. In 1995, she founded the Edible Schoolyard Project, which trains children to plant, grow, and cook their own food at school. It now has programs in 5,000 schools across America and 800 more worldwide. Since 2002, she's been a leader in the slow food movement, which seeks to preserve local food traditions. Her latest book, We Are What We Eat, argues passionately for local seasonal eating and against the centralized food system of most rich countries, which depends on huge farms, international shipping, big box stores, and fast food chains. A more just and equitable food system, she argues, would be better for society and the planet. Alice Waters, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. You were born in 1944 in Chatham, New Jersey, which is about an hour west of New York by train. Tell me about how you and your family ate. What were your family's food conversations like? Well, first of all, we always had to sit at the table. And I had three sisters. One of us had to set the table every night and clear the table. We all had jobs to do. But very sadly, the food on the table was not absolutely delicious because my mother never learned how to cook. She believed in health food. So we never had desserts at dinner. And we always had meat and potatoes. 
and a vegetable. And uh, salad sometimes, but that was kind of iceberg lettuce <laughs> with a kind of bottled vinaigrette dressing. And we were reminded about the people around the world that didn't have enough. And so we had to sit at the table until it was all gone. And you graduated Berkeley in 1967. You had a degree in French and no formal culinary training. And yet your experiences as a student in France seem to have changed your life and therefore also changed American cuisine. I'm curious what you found and learned in France that had such an effect on you. I had an awakening around food. And it sort of began with the baguettes. You know, everybody waited in line to get a hot baguette. And I thought, why are they waiting in line? You can get a baguette in the store. And then I understood it was a hot baguette. And when it was cold, you could hold it close. <laughs> and we came home and we spread it with the apricot jam. And I just said, I want this in my life. And we went to little tiny French restaurants that were run by a family, maybe had 25, 50 people seated, a bar always. And I would look at the menu on the outside of the restaurant with my French friends, and they would say, oh, we can't go there because the oysters don't come into Paris until Wednesday. And they're trying to put the oysters on on Tuesday. <laughs> and I learned about aliveness of food. And we walked by the markets every day on my way to class. They were so beautiful. And there were markets in every part of town. That's the way people bought food. And I understood later that, of course, I was there when... France was really a slow food nation. So it meant that they only had in Paris the food from northern France. I don't even think that they had olive oil from the south of France. We had butter from Brittany that was breathtaking. <laughs> and golden, and just like something I'd never seen before, because that was way back before the French became like the Americans, industrially producing food. Can I ask what you mean by that when you say when the French became like the Americans? You mean in their attitude toward food production? The fast food indoctrination of this country really happened in the 50s when fast food came into being and farms were industrialized to produce food that was fast, cheap, and easy. And they exported it to France. Believe it or not, France has more McDonald's per capita than any other country except this one. I was really shocked when that happened in France, having had the experience that I had in the 60s. Your restaurant, which you opened in 1971, seemed to have functioned from the beginning as a sort of antidote or counterargument to that style of cooking. From the start, you were buying food in season from small local farms long before that kind of thing was fashionable. 
I'm wondering why you did that. Was it a culinary or a political or an ideological or, a, or just a convenience-based decision? It was completely about taste. I was looking for the taste that I had experienced in France, and I couldn't find it. I thought if I opened a little restaurant, maybe I'd understand where the food came from and we'd be able to have that food. But of course, that wasn't where taste came from. It came from the local ripe food that was grown within the state of California, nearby Chopinese. And this was a little bit before the farmer's market movement really blossomed. So when I experienced that taste, I just became completely focused on the organic farmers and ranchers and fishermen who were producing food that was seasonally ripe. And we never had a peach out of season, only had it those two months that it was delicious. And that's when we put the names of the producers on the menu because we wanted them celebrated. We wanted them to know how much we appreciated what they did. And we began buying directly from them. So they would get all of the money. There wasn't a wholesale price that we were asking for. And they all wanted to come and sell to us. And that was the beginning of our restaurant-supported agriculture. That's a great phrase. You used another phrase that stuck in my mind a few minutes ago, fast food indoctrination. In your latest book, We Are What We Eat, you advance strong arguments in favor of slow food culture and against fast food culture. I wonder if you can explain how you use those two phrases and, and, and what they mean. I wanted to know how we lost our values in such a short period of time. I wondered how we changed from sitting at the table with our family and friends to eating in a car. How did we think that food should be fast, cheap, and easy? It's never been since the beginning of civilization. It's always been a priority that you wanted to spend time and money on. I wanted to know why people weren't cooking anymore. I wanted to know what happened to seasonality. Why were we importing food from around the world? When in the early 50s, the only food that we had in New Jersey <laughs> that came from any place else was coffee and tea and spices. That was it. And we ate differently in the winter and the fall, spring and the summer. That was the case everywhere on the planet. So what happened? I go into great detail that we were told that uniformity was very important, that we should be able to get the same food wherever we were, and that we could get it 24-7. How convenient that was. 
to order your food over the phone. No one had ever done that. Everyone always went to the market and chose food. But all of a sudden, it's being chosen for us. And the ideas of more is better, that time is money. The size of a portion of fast food needed to be big because that was something to be valued. So all of these fast food values, not just indoctrinate us about what to buy, but those values became part of the way that we lived. And it's very hard to even talk about slow food values without sounding kind of naive. Beauty, what does beauty mean? For me, it's invaluable. I love to light the candles on the table when I sit down for dinner. But it's about the world I want to live in. And all of a sudden, it is unimportant. It's only for people that can afford beauty and culture. I mean, culture has always been important to people. Music, art, books. And all of a sudden, they're considered only for people who can afford it. It's an elitist thing to go to an opera. Let me ask, you said that the slow food values sometimes seem naive, and you just did use the word elitist. And I'm curious, you know, your restaurant charges $175 for dinner. You have cherished memories of Paris, and yet you seem to bristle at the phrase elitist, when that seems kind of accurate to the sorts of things you are discussing about. Why not embrace that label of elite and elitism? See it as sort of a positive attribute. I'd love to talk about that because I think we've been channeled into to a kind of work life that is like being in jail to work in an Amazon factory without windows, people competing against you to wrap things faster, to live like that where you have to drive two hours to get to your job, you hardly paid anything. You've lost your life. And it's considered, therefore, anybody who is living a good life that is culturally rich is considered elitist. And I don't think of it that way at all. We can create beauty in our lives every day with the food that we buy. And if you know how to cook, you can make beautiful, delicious, affordable food. And I know this because we've been doing this at the Edible Schoolyard Project that I've been involved with for 26 years. And we use only organic food. And of course, it works like a charm. These students who are supposed to be impossible around food because they have really been indoctrinated and they don't want anything that looks different. They don't want anything except French fries. Well, let me tell you, they love food that they cook themselves. Beans and hummus and greens. Who knew that children would like chard and kale? So 
it is that experience that has given me the real courage, I guess I would like to say, to insist that this is the way that we need to feed children in schools, that we can grow food and cook food that students like, that is affordable, and that we can find food locally from farmers and ranchers that bring the food directly to the schools. If we don't eat a lot of meat or cheese, it can fit exactly into the reimbursement we already have from the government in the United States. You mentioned meat, and it just makes me wonder, from a planetary perspective, I think it'd be better if people who could afford to give up meat could do that. Why do you not advocate more strongly for, for veganism in your, in your work and at your restaurant? I use meat more like a condiment, the way the Mediterranean diets and actually diets around the world always have. It was a special treat. I just know that animals on barren land can help to deeply fertilize it in a great way. I'm talking absolutely about 100% grass-fed and grazing. And we never use any meat that's not at Chez Panisse. But it's very important to know where everything comes from. And I know from all of this time of only focusing absolutely on Northern California, that we have to can tomatoes if we're going to have them in the winter. We save certain fruits for desserts. We make a lot of the ingredients that we use during the wintertime. I mean, yes, we have the ability to grow certain things outside, but we don't have eggplants in the winter. People think we have the horn of plenty, and we do not. And that is something that we all have to learn. I find that it's fascinating to find out what the indigenous people grew because they were growing what was good in the land that they had. And we need to learn that again. But surely at that time, malnutrition was also far more widespread than it is today. And I'm, I'm just curious, uh, in that same vein, the philosophy you espouse of local seasonality works in a lot of the world, but not in, say, Finland for a lot of the year or Jordan. So what about people who live in those climates? Except it does work in Finland and Jordan, that all of the practices of drying fish, preserving it, all of those practices were lost in the 50s, just lost. Too much trouble to do that. When in fact, there's so much pride associated with it when you remember that you canned those tomatoes and you're making a tomato sauce in the winter and you say, I did that. <laughs> I made that tomato sauce. That's why it's so delicious. But the malnutrition that we have now with one in three children having diabetes is a crime. It's immoral to feed children food that makes them sick. Let me ask you a question about technology, which you mentioned briefly in your book. 
You also mentioned overfishing, and I connect these two because last year I wrote a long series of articles on on technology and food, and I visited a company in San Diego that was trying to grow bluefin tuna in a bioreactor from cells taken from a tuna. Now, if that technology takes off and you can give people the tuna sushi that they want without pulling fish out of the sea, is that, do you think, something to be cheered or, or worried about? I'm, of course, worried about it. I'm worried about exactly what the nutrition of that fish is. I know that food needs sunlight and really beautiful soil that gives it all that it can. I mean, not just about the taste, but really about the nutrition. And I'm very suspect about food being made in the lab. Totally suspect about that. And so I don't want to just eat what I want to eat and not think about that. I think we need to plant wherever we are. And I know that we, in every country during World War II, that we encouraged the victory gardens. The government gave us books on how to plant in every climate and how to grow this food. And hundreds and thousands of people did that in the United States. And I'm wondering why we aren't saying that right now. And England was giving people allotments of land so that they could have a vegetable garden. And those allotments still exist. The same in Italy. That was part of a big plan for feeding the whole country. And that's what we need now. We need to plant wherever we are. I dug up my front yard and I put a victory garden sign during the pandemic. And people left me little notes under the door. How do you keep the deer away? <laughs> How do you keep the deer away? <laughs> you either plant a part of the garden that they can eat and they do eat. And then you plant things that they don't want to eat. And it was trial and error for me. I realized they don't like fennel and they don't like chives. And so I planted those. <laughs> I keep a garden myself. I love gardening. The system that you envision, though, where we eat seasonally from a decentralized network of small gardens and farms. I know the big distribution, the food distribution system we have now has its problems, but it seems to me relying on single small farms also carries other risks in the case of blight or drought or pests. How would your system guard against that risk? And do you worry about the resilience of a, of a decentralized system like that? I don't really. It's very strange that I feel like that we can be so resourceful we can address drought with cover crops. I mean, there's so much land in California that's owned by big corporate farms. They use all the water. They plant the wrong trees like almond trees that need a lot of water. We have to plant things that don't need a lot of water. We have to use sparingly ingredients that are reliant on the water. Big tomatoes take more than those little cherry tomatoes. There are certain crops that yield a whole lot of food. But it's learning about that. We have a fantastic biodynamic, really regenerative farmer 
Bob Kennard and his family. And they send us things like nettles because they have so many nettles. And we started making a nettle pizza. And it's the most successful pizza in the restaurant. We use the little spring nettles, but when you cook them with garlic and olive oil, they just kind of wilt down. Those are things that we're learning about. And there's so many people that are writing about it right now. And I feel like if we really focused our attention globally, that we could feed ourselves really well in harmony with nature. And that's my hope for school-supported agriculture, because if we teach this in the schools, and if every school purchased its food locally, children would just grow up with that knowledge and the values as part of the, the way they live their lives. Before we let you go, I have to ask for a recipe. You've said before that making a salad gives you as much pleasure as eating it. What is your ideal salad? <laughs> well, I guess my ideal salad was born in the south of France. And they grew this salad there that's called mesclin. It meant a mix of lettuces, like rocket and dandelion greens and all kinds of shapes and colors. And they would sell it in the farmer's market. The farmer would bring it in on a big towel and lay it on a table and pick up a handful and you'd weigh it and you'd take it home. And they made a dressing with anchovies and garlic. And I just loved this salad. And so I took the seeds and I brought them back here. And I think I am a little bit responsible for changing salad in this country because I planted this lettuce in my backyard and we started using it at Chez Penis. And it was successful with a little baked goat cheese. That has become a dish at Chez Panis that's always on the menu and is, I think, symbolic of a kind of sense of biodiversity, got away from that iceberg lettuce and moved into looking at what is growing at every time of the year. The chicory salads are so beautiful that it makes me cry when I see lime green with maroon spots on it, <laughs> yellow, chicory, frilly edges. And I, I find them really irresistible. It's just nature's magic. Alice Waters, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And do let us know what you think about feeding the world, as Alice Waters suggests. Are you licking your lips or turning up your nose at the thought of lab-grown tuna sushi? And what are your tips for keeping the deer away? Seriously, I'd really like to know my garden is being eaten day by day. Write to us at podcast.economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. And if my conversation with Alice Waters has whet your appetite, then there are plenty more tempting treats from The Economist. This week, our sister podcast, The World Ahead, travels to 2042 to find out what the world will and won't be eating. You'll find that episode wherever you get your podcasts. 
and on our website, tuck into my fortnightly food column, World in a Dish. This week, it's about why you should eat more hideous looking sea creatures. To read that and much, much more, become a subscriber today and take advantage of our introductory offer. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Alicia Burrell and Charlotte Pritchard, and the executive producer was Hannah Mourinho. I'm John Fassman, and in New York, this is The Economist.